Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Russ Schaefer-Landau. He's Professor of Philosophy at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. His primary interest is in ethics. He's the author of books like Moral Realism, A Defense, uh, Whatever Happened to Good and Evil, and The Fundamentals of Ethics. So, Dr. Schaefer-Landau, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. So, um, let's start perhaps with some basic questions and some framing here. Uh, what is meta-ethics? What are the kinds of questions it deals with? Meta-ethics is that area of moral philosophy that deals with questions about the nature and the status of morality. Uh, as opposed to normative ethics, which asks questions about what the correct uh, standards of right and wrong or good and evil are, metaethics sort of zooms out and asks, you know, what's the nature of those standards? Are they in some way human constructs? Are they divine commands? Are they uh, true by virtue of being the implications or the endorsements of, say, ideal observers? Metaethics also asks questions about how we can gain moral knowledge if we can, and what sort of rational authority, if any, moral has over we human beings and other moral agents. Mm -hmm. What are the main positions in metaethics? Uh, the main positions are those starting from those that are most skeptical to those that are least. The uh, on the an error theory which says that although we are, uh, when we speak and think in moral terms, we're trying to state the truth, but we never do. So there's a massive error, uh, and morality is basically make-believe. Uh, then there are so-called expressivists, who used to be called non-cognitivists, and the idea is that for them, we're not trying to speak the truth when we make moral judgments. We're doing something else. We're not trying to represent the world, but we're rather, in the old-fashioned view, merely expressing our emotions. So if we say that something's immoral or wrong, all we're really doing is venting our feelings. We're not saying something that could be true or false in the first place. Contemporary uh, iterations of this kind of view are more sophisticated, uh, but they share this basic idea that moral talk and moral thought is not representational, and so it can't be accurate uh, in the first place. Then uh, moving to uh, more uh, committal views, there are so-called constructivist views, according to which there are moral truths, there are moral facts, but these are in some way constructed by some duly specified person or persons. And so uh, forms of simple forms of relativism, for instance, and subjectivism, uh, according to which moral judgments can be true, but only relative to standards of personal or group endorsement fall under the category of constructivism, all the way to, at the most objective form, a kind of I an ideal observer theory, according to which the moral standards that are correct are those that would be endorsed by someone who has full, who's omniscient, who's perfectly rational, uh, et cetera. Uh, 
And then at the farthest end of, this, of, of the non-skeptical spectrum is the view known as moral realism. I'm a fan of that sort of view, according to which there are uh, true moral judgments, some fu true fundamental moral claims or uh, fundamental moral facts that hold. And that's so not in virtue of anyone's ratification or endorsement or responses. Mm -hmm. And within moral realism, are there different approaches, different ways people can, uh, or people say we can arrive at what are the supposed moral truths out there? The main standard division among realists are, is that between naturalists and non-naturalists. Mm -hmm. This division has uh, long been imprecise, but uh, the gist of the, of the division is this. Naturalists think that moral facts are a subspecies of ordinary, empirically discoverable, scientifically respectable facts. So a paradigm of this kind of view is, say, a simple form of consequentialism, according to which an action is morally right just because it maximizes happiness. The thought being, and in fact, you know, the par a paradigm instance of that actually is uh, a view according to which the property of rightness is identical to that of maximizing happiness. If that were so, then on the assumption that what it is to maximize happiness is something that's scientifically respectable, scientifically discoverable, you've got a paradigm naturalist view. On the other hand, the non-naturalists say that morality is uh, discontinuous with science, both metaphysically and epistemologically, so that what moral properties are, moral features are, is something very different from those that science tells us about. Mm -hmm. But, uh, I mean, when moral realists talk about moral truths, uh, let's say from a... In, ter in, terms of, in terms of the metaphysics of what we're talking about here, what is the metaphysical status of moral truths? I mean, are they, uh, do moral realists think about moral truths as, uh, proper, as a property of the universe, like, for example, uh, mass is for physics? For uh, physicists, sorry. Yeah. Well, in in many ways, they do. Um, if you're a non-naturalist realist, you won't think of the property of goodness as rel as similar to that of mass. Um, in the following sense, the property of uh, having a certain mass is a scientific property, and if you're a non-naturalist, you won't think that goodness is like that. However, you will think that they're similar in the sense that these properties and their instantiations, that is when, when it is that these properties are realized, is not determined by our attitudes towards these properties. So there are facts that obtain, quote, out there, that's a metaphor, but what that stands for is the idea that the fundamental principles that govern these properties are ones that hold but not in virtue of anyone's attitude towards those principles or their implications. Mm -hmm. But, uh, I mean, so um, how can we uncover or discover 
those moral truths. I, I mean, I, I'm trying to understand a very specific thing here that is, uh, even if we do not adopt, let's say, a constructivist view of metaethics, or even if we, if we are not moral relativists or something like that, uh, I mean, it's still the case that moral values operate in human minds and not outside of them, correct? Or, or do you not agree with that? Well, if, if, uh, are you asking a question about what the implications of constructivism are, or are you asking what the realist assessment of the claim you just made is? Uh, what the realist assessment yeah. of the claim I've just made is. Yeah. yeah. So what the realist would say is that there are certain, most realists would say this, there are certain moral principles um, Realists will differ amongst themselves about which ones they are, but there are certain moral principles that, uh, if you think of principles as facts, hold, and they hold before human beings came on the scene, and they will continue to hold after human beings have gone, after our species becomes extinct, and so that these facts don't depend for their existence on being appreciated by human beings. Human beings are, uh, if they're fortunate, are able to grasp these facts, but the facts themselves, the fundamental ones, which are principles, on my view at least, uh, don't depend on being perceived or grasped or appreciated. There are other facts, I don't want to, this can sound kind of weird, so you know, there are other facts like what Putin is doing right now in the Ukraine is grossly immoral. That fact depends on human minds um, in the sense that if people weren't being caused to suffer, which is a mental state, uh, then what he be what he's doing is certainly far less wrong. Maybe it wouldn't be maybe it wouldn't be wrong at all. So when it comes to particular moral facts that are the instantiations of moral properties, then these can very often depend on there being human beings around. But if you think about the fundamental principles, let's just assume, for instance, that Kant's principle of humanity is a fundamental moral principle. That you must treat um, rational autonomous beings as ends and not as mere means. Let's just assume for purposes of argument that that's a fundamental principle. The realist assumption would be that principle is true and it's not true because I think it's true, because Kant thought it was true, because a whole bunch of philosophers think it's true. It's just, it just is true. It's, it's part of reality. There is a moral reality that is just as real as the scientific reality that scientists discover. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's just that, uh, of course, I come from a scientific background, but it seems a bit uh, weird, you also use that word, uh, for me to understand why there would still be moral principles in the universe in existence without there being any human beings. Well, let me, get, uh, let me try to soften you up to this idea okay. by inviting you to think about this. Suppose uh, I don't know. 
I know you're asking the questions, but I'll ask you a question that you don't have to answer, of course. And that is, do you have a, can a favorite candidate for what a fundamental moral principle is? Uh, well, no, not exactly. Okay, all right. Well, let, in that case, let's just uh, take Kant's principle again, Kant's principle of humanity. And suppose it's, suppose you're willing to grant that it's a, it, it's true. Uh, mm. So it's a, it's, a, it's a moral fact that you're required to treat rational and autonomous beings with respect, let's say, just to summarize that, that principle. Now, that's true right now when there are billions of human beings on the planet. And now let's suppose that an asteroid hits the universe tomorrow. With, sorry, hits, hits the Earth tomorrow with the result that all human beings are killed. My claim is that if you're willing to agree with the, uh, with the thought that that principle, Kant's principle, is true today, it will be true two days from now as well when there are no human beings around. What could explain why the principle becomes false? I mean, the principle doesn't ha have anyone, you know, assuming that we're the only rational autonomous beings in the universe, which is improbable, but let's just assume that. The principle wouldn't apply to anything two days from now, but that doesn't mean the principle is false. It just means the principle won't be realized there won't be any more concrete, specific moral facts to the effect, oh, this guy treated that, that person immorally because this guy treated that person as a mere means. There won't be any facts like that around, but the principle itself doesn't become false just because an asteroid hits the Earth. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's, it's not uh, exactly focused or limited to human beings but it's more it more broadly encompasses rational beings is that the, uh, that's true for this Kantian principle but my, my view would be something like it would be a little different but it's only subtly different moral principles apply to moral agents so what's required for there to be concrete moral facts, by which I mean the instantiation of moral principles, uh, is for there to be moral agents. So once there are no more moral agents around, if that day ever happens, then there won't be any facts to the effect that this action is wrong, that being is blameworthy, this action is, is morally virtuous. There won't be facts like that, but there will be true principles whose truth abides and, and, and remains principles to the effect that, for instance, if an action is, treats a, a rational agent with disrespect, then that action is wrong. There won't be any such actions if there are no moral agents around, but the principle itself will still be true. Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, I guess that uh, one of the issues I have with moral realism is that uh, okay, so I don't know if you agree with this premise or not, but I think that for human beings to uh, pronounce uh, moral truths or moral evaluations of actions, let's say, uh, we have to have evolved 
to process information in a certain way. So le let's say that we were exposed to different selective pressures and we processed information from our social environment in different ways, as, for example, other species do. It can be discussed if we are the only uh, animals with morality or not, because certainly other animals, particularly great apes and primates, also exhibit behaviors that are very much, I would say, consistent with what people would call moral behavior, perhaps not moral judgment, but moral behavior. Uh, so w isn't that a problem that, that perhaps we, we are just, uh, it just so happens that we process moral information in a certain way because we evolved under certain selective pressures and if they had been otherwise, then we would think about morality and particular moral issues in a different way, for example. Uh, that's that line of thinking that you very clearly expressed is at the heart of a literature that has grown up in the last uh, roughly 15 years, largely owing to Sharon Street, a philosopher at NYU who wrote a very influential paper that initiated this uh, trend uh, of so-called Darwinian debunking of realism. Uh, evolutionarily what, debunking arguments, correct? That's right. That's right. And uh, I just want to say a couple things about those arguments. We could talk for the next hour, at least, about those arguments. But just to clarify their ambitions. Their ambitions, uh, the argument basically goes like this, that given an empirical premise about the evolutionary ori origins of our moral sentiments and our, our, our moral concepts, and given an additional epistemological premise, which says that when your beliefs arise in a certain way, they're un they lose their whatever justification they might have had, then together this empirical and epistemological premise yield the conclusion that if you're a realist, we're going to be left with no moral knowledge at all. Okay. So this is an, is, is an epistemological argument that's meant to provide what's called an undercutting defeater of the justification of our moral beliefs on the assumption that moral realism is true. And in order to vindicate an argument with that structure, what you've got to do is you've got to specify that epistemological premise very clearly, and you've also got to justify the empirical premise. My own view is that neither one of these undertakings has been done successfully. Um, maybe the briefest way to register my ejection is just is to point to a worry about the empirical premise. I think an argument, uh, a, a debunking argument structured along the lines that you've suggested will work only if it's the case that we really have the moral beliefs we do. Uh, primarily or exclusively because of the way that natural selection has operated. But I don't think that that premise has been vindicated. In fact, I think there's good reason to deny that premise. Here's the reason. If evolutionary forces were the primary or exclusive 
causes of the moral views that we have, then given the uniformity, the relative uniformity at least, of the way in which evolutionary forces have operated on our, our species, we should expect much more uniformity of moral views than we in fact see. And, uh, one of the, in fact, one of the large, one of the big objections, perennial objections to moral realism is, begins with the thought that there's so much moral disagreement. Uh, and how can, how can there be a moral reality if we can't ever agree about what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's bad? So I'm suspicious of uh, these Darwinian or evolutionary debunking arguments for that reason, among others. I'm also, uh, I think that the relevant epistemic principle that's meant to be operative in these arguments has rarely been carefully enough specified. And when it has, that principle has not turned out to be plausible under, after critical review, according to me at least. Could you elaborate a little bit more on that last point, please? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so what is, so suppose that our, our moral views were largely influenced by uh, by evolutionary processes, then he here's an epistemic principle that uh, that might yield skepticism, and that is that if you were to, um, if it were easily the case that your belief were false, then your belief is unjustified, and you ally that with the further claim that well, if evolutionary processes had been different then it would easily be the case that our moral views were false, uh, are, fa are false, and therefore our moral views are unjustified. But I think that epistemic principle is mistaken. It's not the case that, uh, well, let me put it this way. I don't think that epistemic principle, even if it's true, that's the better way to put it, even if it's true, causes trouble for realism because realism will regard at least the fundamental moral truths as necessarily true. They cannot, in fact, be easily false. There's no close possible world in which you have, uh, in which the content of your belief is mistaken, if what you current belie currently believe happens to be true. So that epistemic principle wouldn't threaten moral realism. There are other pr epistemic principles that might do, but uh, for instance, if it were, if uh, in a nearby possible world, you would believe something, uh, you'd believe something different from what you currently believe, for reasons that have nothing to do with the truth of your belief, then then you're in trouble if your belief meets that condition. But then that just assumes that what that our moral beliefs. Are, are had for reasons that bear no relation to their truth. But that, I think, just begs the question against the realist. The, what the realist is going to say is that, of course, we all have many false beliefs. None of us is morally omniscient. In fact, it's, it's precisely because we take a realist view about things and we don't get to make up the condition, our, our attitudes, our judgments don't, are not constitutively related to the truth in morality, that just creates a lot more room for error. So what the realist is going to say is many of us, all of us 
are morally fallible. None of us has the entire truth here. So we do need to allow for the possibility that many of us are off base in, in very serious ways. But when I reflect on that, that seems to me exactly right. Putin is way off in many, many ways, for instance, about morality. And you can pick your, your favorite immoral character in order to explain how it is that some people are very far off base. But for those of us, well, I, for those people who largely have it right, what the realist is going to say is that, well, they could have it right just on just because of an accident. That's a possibility that we can't discount. But in other cases, what were what seems a likelier explanation and, and one that's not yet been successfully challenged by evolution, evolutionary debunking arguments is that some people w were fortunate enough to be raised well and fortunate enough to develop a, a, a moral sensitivity to the facts such that they have the they have many of the moral beliefs they do because they are appreciating a truth not of their own making. Hmm. Okay, so, and what do you make of the fact that uh, anthropologists have studied societies where people deal with the same moral issues in different ways or have different solutions to the same mm -hmm. moral issues and adding to that uh, work recently done in political and moral psychology uh, like for example Jonathan Haidt's Moral Foundations where it seems that uh, different for example, political tribes and different individuals seem to have uh, a preference uh, that we can argue if it is innate or not for different moral foundations. I mean, does that have any implications for uh, the claims made by moral realists? Uh, I'm, I don't think that uh, these, these claims challenge, successfully challenge moral realism. Here's why. Uh, it's what one thing the moral realist is going to say in the face of substantial disagreement on a, on a given issue is, actually, there are a number of things to say. One is this. Some disagreements, and, th and this point was made by John Mackey, in fact, who is an error theorist, as anti-realist a philosopher as you can you can find and that is that many many disagreements that we see it, uh, in the world apparent moral disagreements turn out after closer inspection not to be moral disagreements at all rather they turn out to be different ways of implementing a commitment to the very same moral principle so for instance it might be that there's a, a shared principle uh, to do with respecting those uh, you're near and dear, let's say. But the form in, that such respect uh, takes can differ totally legitimately from one culture to another. So it might look that there, there are big differences. For instance, if I meet my in-laws, I don't have to bow to them. I don't have to, I didn't have to give my in-laws um, a, a, a cow 
or several goats uh, before I offered, before I sought to marry their, their daughter. Uh, and yet those in other cultures are expected to do those things. And if they don't do those things, if they don't bow, for instance, then they're thought to be disrespectful. This sort of, this is a, a sort of quite legitimate cultural variation here that doesn't itself signal any moral disagreement or disagreement about what the moral principles are at bottom. There's, there's some disagreement, you know, in, in cultures in which it's mandated that you bow, then they'd say, yeah, mor morality requires me to bow. But what really that's shorthand for is morality requires me to respect, to show respect to these people. And this is our way of showing respect. And I, who am not required to bow, can say, yeah, morality requires me to show respect to, pe to certain people. But in my culture, there are different ways of showing respect. And that's totally unproblematic. That's one response designed to show that there's perhaps less, not perhaps, that there is less moral disagreement than might at first appear to be. Here's another response, and that is that when we've gotten, we, we've done all that work and, and then figured out, oh yeah, you know what, there really are some deep disagreements here. There's some cultures that are honor-based, for instance, to use one of Haidt's categories, and there, and there are um, yet other cultures that aren't honor-based and that they don't think of, they don't carve out their moral uh, conceptual framework in terms of honor. What about that? Then what the realist is, is bound to say is that someone's making a mistake here. Maybe both, both cultures are making a mistake, but at least one is. If there is a genuine contradiction uh, across cultures, or even within a culture for that matter, the realist is committed to saying they can't both be correct. At least one of them is mistaken, and maybe both of them are mistaken. In my, in my own view, uh, honor-based, you know, sort of paradigmatic honor-based cultures tend to be infused with toxic masculinity and uh, are ba based on various assumptions about gender roles that strike me as unfounded. Now, if, you know, probably your follow-up question is, well, how is it that I'm so confident that my view is correct and their view isn't? Because after all, they're just as confident that their view is correct and I'm not correct. Should, should I answer the question that I posed in your mouth? Or should uh, we move on? Okay, that, that would be one. But before we get there, let me just ask you this. Uh, so with that specific example of uh, an honor culture in mind, uh, what if, and I'm not saying this is the case exactly, but what if anthropologists found out that due to the uh, ecological circumstances, people are live in those kinds of societies, that having certain kinds of more, for example, violent behaviors uh, would be necessary for that society to be functional, for example. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure how to assess that because I think that's a counterfactual. Uh, as I don't think it's really the case that societies need to be as vi as internally violent as they are uh, in order to, for them to be functional. In fact, depending on the the relevant aim of 
of a society and of a moral code, uh, you might think it's impossible for a society to be functional and at the same time highly violent. Because you might think that the function of a moral code is to promote cooperation and interpersonal harmony. If you think that, then by that measure, I'm not saying that's the correct measure, but if that's your view about what the proper function of a moral code is, then these sorts of societies are failing. They can't, they can't in fact be functional because they're perpetrating needless violence. Now, you, I guess you're trying to, you're asking, well, Mike, can't we think of a scenario in which we have to, we have to say a society has to promote the honor killing of teenage girls who've been raped because it needs to do that in order to remain functional. That's where I think, that's where I say, I own it. It really is very hard for me to imagine what that scenario could be like. That seems like a very, very remote possible world where okay. that sort of practice has to be maintained in order for a society to be functional. Okay. Okay. So another another example, then perhaps a less alien example for people like us that come from what anthropologists would call weird societies. Uh, for example, uh, pastoralist societies, where, uh, for example, there's a lone man, a lone pastor with their own herd and they have to be uh, more violent than people in our modern industrialized societies are on average because they have to protect their animals from uh, other people that might be there to steal their animals or even from other predator animals. I, I mean, because what I meant by functional was not exactly functional from, uh, I mean, this is hard to explain, but not functional from a moral perspective, but functional in the sense that in a particular context for that society to thrive and to keep on going and for people to be uh, evolutionarily successful, then perhaps in certain circumstances they have to adopt behaviors that uh, make them uh, or that increase their fitness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so in that case, what I'd say is that there's, it may be that in order, in order, it actually is, I'm not, yeah, it is the case that in some circumstances, one is likelier to face this choice. I have to be violent or else I'm going to die. In my own life, I don't have to face that choice, uh, fortunately. Mm -hmm. If I, but the shepherd that you described may have, may face that choice. No. I don't think that this indicates that the shepherd and I uh, that there is a different moral code that applies to the two of us. I think it's the same moral code. Mm -hmm. It's just that, uh, so there, there are certain principles of self-defense that are correct. I'm not sure which ones those are. If you're a realist, at least, what you're going to say is that there is a, there's a, there's a proper code of conduct 
to govern cases of self-defense. When you're ju justified in perpetrating violence in order to defend yourself and when you're not. It's very hard to figure out what that code is, but it's best construed realistically. And then what I'd say is that that code applies just as well to me as it does to the shepherd. It may be, though, that the shepherd just has to uh, rely on violence more frequently in order to defend himself than, than I do in my life. But were it the case that I was confronted with a violent attacker, then the same principle applies to me as it does to the shepherd, even though I'm in an industrial, you know, highly educated industrial, industrialized society and the shepherd is in a pastoral society. That by itself does not uh, suggest that there's any difference in their applicable moral principles. Right. So, okay, so now perhaps is the point where I will ask you the question you mentioned earlier. Uh, how can you be sure that when there's disagreement, and I mean, we don't even need to go outside our own uh, societies, I guess, that in many ways, Portuguese and American cultures are not that different. I mean, there's disagreements, for example, in politics between the right and the left. I mean, when it comes to that, when there's disagreements, how can you be sure uh, that one of those groups of people is wrong and the other right, and which is what? Yeah, uh, it's not, I don't know that you ever can be sure in the sense of, uh, in the sense of being such that you are incapable of making an error uh, and you can be certain of that. Maybe we were never in that position, but that's okay because we can't, you know, you, you can't be sure that I'm not a figment of your imagination right now, right? But we don't require, epistemologists don't require certainty in order to have knowledge. Let me start by, but so we could rephrase the question and say, well, how is it that you can retain your, or be just, remain justified in your belief in the face of dis disagreement? And what I want to say is, suppose I have someone who says, I mean, there are such people who say, you know what, the earth is flat. It's not round. That's the, uh, scientists have just engaged in a massive conspiracy to get people to think that the earth is round. There are people who really believe this. Uh, I don't, and uh, scientists don't. And what you can say is, in that case, well, there's disagreement, and let's assume it's intractable. You're never going to get these people to agree with you. So there's going to be this disagreement is cannot be resolved, or will will never be resolved. Should that cause scientists and the rest of us to lose our justification for the belief that the earth is round? I think the answer is clearly no, it shouldn't. So what are the conditions under which disagreement serves as a so-called defeater or undercutting defeater of the justification of our beliefs? And that's a question that is uh, the subject of a lot of debate in contemporary epistemology. But uh, what's clear I think, if, if anything is clear from this, uh, the debates that have been happening in this literature for 20 years, is that 
there's pressure on us to reduce our confidence in our beliefs in the face of disagreement only if we are justifiably only if we justifiably believe that the person we disagree with is as acute an observer as wise a judge of the matter as we are but i think that when it comes to many moral disagreements for instance the disagreements i you know this I have with those who think that it's okay to perform an honor killing on a teenage girl because she's been raped. I don't regard that person as my so-called epistemic peer when it comes to morality. I don't think that that person is in as good a position as I to appreciate what's right and wrong in this, in this case. On other cases, I am genuinely perplexed and I do regard other people as my quote epistemic peers in that case. And if they, if they uh, tell me, you know what, Russ, you're mistaken about this. That's going to give me pause and rightly so. I think I will, I should lose confidence in, in my view. Uh, there are certain qualifications and nuances and things like that, but the pressure to, as, as epistemologists call it, conciliate, that is to lessen your confidence in your belief in the face of disagreement, comes only in the case in which you justifiably judge the person you disagree with as your epistemic peer in the first place. There are many, many moral disagreements where that condition is not met, and so I don't think there's any pressure to undercut your justification. It's still the case, of course, that you may not be sure that you're the one with the privileged position here. That's right. But that's no different from any non-moral case. As a general matter, in epistemology, this principle that says in order to know something, you need to know that you know it. Most epistemologists reject that claim. And I I would reject that claim as well. So it may well be that you or I or someone else has moral knowledge, even if they don't know that they do. And furthermore, I think it's very clear that it's possible to have knowledge of a given kind, even if you can't convince everyone who disagrees with you that you're the one in the right and they're the one in the wrong. That was the point. That's one of the points uh, that made in the flat earth example. I'll never convince a flat earther that the earth is roughly round. That's compatible with me knowing that the earth is roughly round. Mm -hmm. Yes, but when it comes to the epistemology, and I guess I agree with you that this is not just a problem for moral philosophers, it could also be argued that it would be a problem for scientists as well. I mean, do you, or do you look at it as a problem uh, that maybe there's no definite way of, uh, of saying or stating or proving whatever term you want to use there, that one particular epistem epistemological approach is better than all the others? I think there's a way, there's, there are clear ways of stating that one view is better than another. There are also clear ways of proving that one view is better than another, but I understand by proof something which does not mandate universal consensus. 
So I think it's possible to prove something, even though there are some people who dissent from the proof. So you can prove something by by utilizing premises premises in an argument, all of which all all the premises are true, and you can use logical means to deduce a conclusion from those premises. And uh, if all the premises are true, the conclusion is going to be true as well, and you have a proof. That proof may be doubted by many. It's still a proof, nonetheless. Something can, something can count as a proof, even though not everyone agrees with it. In that sense of proof, it's possible to prove many things in philosophy, in morality, and in science. If by proof you've got a stronger, if you've got a stronger standard for proof, such that anyone who can understand the content of the proof is rationally compelled, given what, given whatever they happen to currently believe, to accept the conclusion of that proof, then I don't know that the proofs are possible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just that. Uh, I, I mean, perhaps uh, I'm just ignorant about this particular issue, but uh, it, uh, I have the feeling that at a, certain po at a certain point in the discussion, there's, uh, there's a place where people just have to decide to either accept or not accept the premises from which a particular epistemological approach uh, starts let's say for for, ex for example in science and of course i'm very much fond of science and i have a scientific background but it seems to me that uh, it's impossible to prove uh, unless you just simply accept it and believe it that the empirical approach science has to knowledge, to the world, uh, it's impossible to prove it uh, as the one that really produces knowledge that is uh, as accurate as possible about the reality we exist in. I mean, it seems to me that we either you accept that or not there's no way of definitely proving it well it is true that either you accept it or not that you does you accept that there is an external world out there that we are sometimes accurately representing or you don't accept that and perhaps you think we live in a matrix or we live in an, in an illusion you know, or something like that um, that, that's true. I, either you accept that or you don't. Um, then, but uh, if, if your claim is that, suppose I'm talking with a diehard skeptic, hmm. okay, about the external world, forget about morality for a second. If what you're saying is that there may be no way to, uh, to convince the skeptic that I'm right, and she's wrong. That's true. There may be no way. If instead what you're saying is there may be no way to utilize, you're saying something perhaps more specific, namely that 
we can't without we can't if we utilize only claims that she's willing to accept we can't then prove that there's an external world that's correct as well i believe we can't show that there is necessarily some internal incoherence on the skeptics part that's also true but it's not clear to me what follows from that it, do, it doesn't to me it doesn't follow that my views my view that there is such a thing as an external world is false certainly doesn't follow nor does it follow that my my belief that there is an external world is unjustified so i'm not i'm not yet sure what problem this this inability to uh, to convince a skeptic is meant to cause for those who are realists say about the external world or about morality. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. So another question, where would you say then people's moral beliefs come from? Many places. Uh, it's primarily the job of a psychologist, a sociologist and anthropologist to answer that question, I think. Uh, there's no question to me that some moral that many of our moral beliefs come from the culture we happen to be raised in, the parents who happen to have raised us. Maybe there are innate moral dispositions that, that we have, and maybe they, they differ from person to person, or maybe they are uniform across the species. I don't know. I, I don't, I'm not going to speculate on that. Uh, but it may all it is also the case i think that some of our moral beliefs come through thinking about the matter uh and sometimes through such thinking we can come to interesting new discoveries about what's right and wrong our emotions play a role uh in in many many cases uh it's basically it's complicated that's my view i don't have a kind, I don't have a monistic or very singular view that says, oh, all of our moral views come from X. I, I think, yeah, I read a book and that can change the way I think about something. I sit down in an armchair and I think for three hours, that can change the way I think about something. I talk to someone whose view, whose opinion I, I admire, that can change my view about something. My parents inculcated a certain view in me early on, and maybe I don't reflect on that throughout my life, there's the, there's the cause of, of that belief. But it's also, you know, what I don't think, maybe I don't know that this is where you were going with this, but what I don't think is that just because we've been raised to, to, to think a certain way, that we're bound to think that way. That, um, I can point to examples in my own life, and it's, you can probably point to examples in yours where you've had a change of mind or change of heart, however you describe it. And uh, the, the causes of that could be quite complicated. Mm -hmm. No, what I wanted to ask next, and that's the reason why I first uh, asked you this question, was do you think that uh, knowing where more uh, people's moral beliefs come from and how they form them does that 
or would that have any bearing or influence how people go through the process of doing moral philosophy and ethics and would that have any implications for uh, how they arrive at moral truths? It, well, certainly it can uh, have implications in the latter case. If this, this, uh, this is basically a variation on the, the question you asked maybe half an hour ago about evolutionary debunking arguments. It's possible, well, here's the case. If I thought that the only reason I believe I have the moral belief that I do is because uh, my society stands for that view, then that that should undercut the confidence I have in the, in that view. It, because in that you know, it's just an accident that I'm born in the society I happen to be born in, rather than some other society. And why you know why I think that you know this society is latched onto the truth in a way that another society is not. So it is the case that if I believe, if I have a moral belief just because, uh, you know, it makes me feel good to have it, or be just because, exclusively because my society stands for that view, then if I have no independent means of determining whether or not making me feel good is linked to the truth, or being the product of this society's uh, influence is linked to the truth, then I should give up that belief or lose confidence in it in a major way. Um, but as I said earlier, it's if you have this view, namely that we are capable of, sorry. No problem. I got a little, got a little excited. <laughs> that we are capable of uh, figuring out, maybe with the help of others, uh, often with the help of others, in fact, what's right and wrong. And if it's, uh, and if we can make a plausible, tell a plausible story according to which we have at least some of the moral beliefs we do because they're true, that we are, we are sufficiently morally sensitive to things that we have come, that, that even if it's the case that we have the moral belief we do because our parents taught us that or our society taught us that if it's also the case that we can step back and think critically about this given belief and come to hold the belief now not primarily because of those influences but rather because of an appreciation of the truth then i think our moral beliefs are in fine standing i'm not saying that many of us do that or that that happens in most cases but what in order to block sort of wholesale skepticism on realist assumptions, what we need to do is hold out that possibility, at least, for how it is that we can justify our moral beliefs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was just trying to understand, just putting aside even questioning moral realism, um, I was just trying to understand if you think that uh, knowing uh, psychologically, anthropologically, how people form their moral beliefs and where their moral intuitions come from would be important. Uh, I mean, it would be important to be aware of that 
as a moral philosopher and an ethicist because it could be or it could happen that not uh, ev uh, not all the time but sometimes at least people have these very strong intuitions and what they could be doing is just rationalizing their position after mm -hmm. the fact. Yeah, well, you. I think we all have to be uh, open to the possibility that our some of our deepest convictions are merely rationalizations of uh, of attitudes we have that were acquired on the w without uh, bearing any connection to the truth. That's happened in my in my own case, for instance. I uh, I'll just give you an example of how this can come about. I, I'm not sure exactly where my strongly retributive emotions came from, mm. but I have them. And when I contemplate certain cases of really heinous behavior, I'm gratified at the prospect of the perpetrators suffering as a result. Mm -hmm. um, and so that those sort of emotions led me for a long while to endorse the death penalty. But then I started thinking more about the justification of the death penalty. And I, I came after long reflection to believe that the retributivist theory or any, uh, any strong retributivist theory of punishment is immoral, is, is false rather. And so the death penalty, at least if it's imposed on the basis of, of the thought that people deserve, some people deserve to die, is not defensible. So I don't, it's not the case that I have extinguished my retributive emotions. I still have them, but I don't allow them to guide my thinking about the justification of punishment in the way that I once did. Because like, as I said, after thinking through the arguments fairly extensively, I came to find the retributivist arguments or the retributivist justifications for punishment implausible. So that's that's a point. I'm, I'm not going to speculate about where my retributive emotions came from, but it's I think what, what what was happening in my own case is that my beliefs about the propriety of the death penalty were rationalizations of emotions that I felt. But I think it's possible, as, as this example indicates, of course, retributives won't find this a good example, but I think it's possible to to take a step back from your strong emotions and ask whether or not the views that those emotions are leading you to have actually can withstand scrutiny. And the answer, if you're, is sometimes no, they can't. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I mean, before we go, uh, would you like to tell people where they can find your work on the internet? Uh, I have a website. It's not very good. I made it 15 years ago and I try to update it every now and then. And just go to my website. There's no, there are only four people in the world with my last name and they're all members of my family and I'm the only philosopher among them. So just uh, Google my name, you'll find my website and it's got information about some of my work. Okay, great. So Dr. Schaefer Landau, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show and uh, I mean, I hope you 
didn't feel offended with my pressing <laughs> you on on some of these issues. Uh, it's no, just no, that Ricardo, I find... you're the dissenter. I expect no less. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, great. So, look, it was a real, a really fun conversation. So, thank you so much. I enjoyed it. Thank you very much for having me. Hi guys, thank you for watching this interview until the end. If you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like, hit the subscription button, all of those things you already know. And please consider supporting the show either on PayPal or Patreon. All of the links will be in the description box of the interview starting at $1 per month. So it would be a great help. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Perga Larson, Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunder, Ricardo Vladimir, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Jacob Klinkwi, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Eric Alenia, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Vosbo, Weingard, Rebecca Neuberger, Goldstein, Dan Demetri, Robert Windegger, Rui Narcio, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Colombo, George Pinha, Phil Kavanagh, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Michael Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Yugni, Alexander Dunbauer, Fergal Kassan, Ivan Bodrenko, Al Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Leibrandt, Oslem Bullut, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W. João Weira, Tom Hamel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Desaraujo, Eden Solon, Romain Roach, Dremiti Grigoriev, Diego Lanonio Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adana Rusmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostasevsky, Nelek Bach, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Al Ortiz, Guy Madison, Gary G. Hellman, João Linhares, Lida Cosmidi, Saima Fzal, Adrian Yegi, Nick Golden, Paulo Tolentino, João Barbosa, Jules Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pons Cortes, Ursula Litzke, Denise Cook, Scott, Zachary Fish, Tim Duffy and Trader in NYC, my producers is our web, Jim Frank, Lucas Stafiniak, Ian Gilligan, Luis Caetano, Tom Vangnagdam, Curtis Dixon, John Linares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Giddy, Sardus France, Thomas Trumbull and Nuno Welder. And my executive producers, Michel Ruzieski, Rosie, James Pratt, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Codriano and Bogdan Canivets. Thank you for all.